0: What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back. Today's episode is going to be brought to you by Mystery Ranch, built for the mission. Oh, yeah. And if you guys uh, haven't been rocking a Mystery Ranch Fireline pack uh, over the course of your entire career, well, your back probably hates you. Kind of doing it wrong. They make, obviously, the most well-built, the most comfortable, and the toughest Fireline packs in the game. So, highly suggest that if you don't have a mystery ranch fireline pack. Well, I highly suggest that you go over to www.mysteryranch.com and pick yourself up one or, you know, bump that message to uh, your module leaders and get them going on the bees knees of backpacks in the fire game. But not only do they make just fire packs, they make a ton of other load bearing essentials. They make briefcases, they make backpacks, they make hunting accessories. If you want to go peel a trophy elk off the side of the hill, they make a solution for that. If you want to go hike up a mountain and then snowboard or ski down it, they've got you covered. They make it all. And those all could be found over at www.mysteryranch.com. But check this out. They're also giving back to the FIRE community specifically with the Backbone Series and the Backbone Scholarship. These things kind of work hand in hand, but it is awesome. You'll have an opportunity to win a one of these limited $1,000 grants to you folks in the field looking to get some education under their belt. So if you want to go back to school and uh, have an opportunity to get some of it paid for, well... It's easy. Just go over to www.mysteryranch.com, find the Backbone Series landing page, and submit your story. You might have an opportunity to win one of these grants. It is awesome. So once again, if you guys want to find out more, go over to www.mysteryranch.com and check it out. The Anchor Point Podcast is also going to be brought to you by our premier coffee sponsor, and that is none other than Hot Shot Brewery. It's kick-ass coffee for a kick-ass cause, and a portion of the proceeds will always go back to the Wildland Firefighter Foundation. But in addition to kick-ass coffee for kick-ass causes, they also have all the tools of the trade to get your morning started off right, and a ton of other Wildland Firefighter themed apparel to help rep that Wildland Firefighter culture it's pretty awesome so if you need uh, a sweet hoodie or a sweatshirt hell they even got baby onesies head over to www.hotshotbrewing.com and check them out oh yeah forgot to mention they also help the Anger point podcast by slinging our merch so if you're looking for one of those hard to come by Anger point podcast tees or the band of brothers tees well now's your opportunity. What are you waiting for? Go over to www.hotshotbrewing.com and check them out. The Anchor Point Podcast would also like to give a quick little shout out to our buddy Booze over at The Ass Movement. And if you haven't heard of The Ass Movement, well, I highly suggest you go over to www.thefirewild.com and check out The Ass Movement. It's an acronym. And it stands for the anti-surface shitting movement. And I'm a huge supporter of this cause, primarily because I'm an outdoorsman. I hate nothing more than going to my favorite fishing spot, my favorite fly fishing spot, and seeing poop on the trail. Like human feces gift wrapped in toilet paper. It's disgusting, it's a mess, and it's a plague on our public lands, and that shit needs to stop. It's gross. But... If you are so inclined, go over to www.thefirewild.com and check out the ass movement to where you can get a bunch of your anti-surface shitting, burying your poo propaganda all in one place. So if you want to spread the good word about burying your turds, go over to that website and enter the code anchor point ass 10, all one word for 10% off your entire order over at the ass movement. Go check them out. Start spreading the good word of burying your poo. And hell, if you have a uh, problem pooper on your crew, they even offer uh, turd trowels. It's pretty cool. You can get them a little customized shovel to help remind them to bury their business. But anyways, once again, go over to www.thefirewild.com and check out the ass movement. And last but not least, the Anchor Point Podcast is going to be brought to you by the Smoky Generation, also known as the American Wildfire Experience. And if you don't know what that is, well, I highly recommend going over to www.wildfireexperience.org and checking it out. It basically is a digital catalog, a digital archive of stories about wildland firefighting dating all the way back to the 1940s. There's a collection of over 100 of these from our peers in the field. It is freaking rad. Bethany has a kick-ass organization over there, and I, uh, I I love what she does. But she also gives back to the community. Oh yeah, 2021 micro Grants, Smoky Generation micro Grants, are opening up here pretty soon. There's going to be a limited number of $500 grants available out there to the folks that are telling the story of Wildland Fire. So whether you're a writer, a blogger, a cinematographer, a photographer, anybody who's telling the story of wildland fire, definitely go over to www.wildfireexperience.org and check it out for more information. Bethany, you have an awesome organization over there. Keep it up. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back. Welcome back to another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast. So uh, apologies for the delay on uh, our last episode. Uh, It's been, well, about a month-ish, but I had to move. I had holidays. I had to start a new job, blah, 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 and I just needed a break. So here we are. But with that being said, we should be back to our regularly scheduled programming. So look forward for more episodes coming down the line. Also. Guess what? You can find this little episode on the old YouTube. So if you guys want to go check that out on YouTube, well, feel free. Anyways, today on the show, I have got a bit of a legend on the show. She has 31 years in the Forest Service and she has done uh, quite a bit of work in the realm of women. Uh, in FIRE programs, SISM programs, and mental health programs. She also operates a badass blog, and she has some, I would say, award-winning work on her blog. But with that being said, I'd like to introduce my good friend and uh, longtime uh, anticipated guest on the show, Reva Duncan. Welcome to The Anchor Point. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast. Happy New Year. Today on the show, I've got the legendary Reva yeah. Duncan. See, I had to give you a grand entrance, you know, since it's the oh, first boy. of the year, you know, we got to just like, we got to kick it off right. Yeah, pressure's on though. Eh, I wouldn't worry about it too much. <laughs> <laughs> so Reva, how are you doing tonight?
1: I'm doing great. How are you,
0: Brandon? I'm excellent. I am actually in my new studio which is still yeah. in the works but my studio is just a spare bedroom that's instead <laughs> of the living room
1: <laughs> looks good looks professional it's, it's good, good setup.
0: yeah so my wife and i just uh we uh actually closed on our house over christmas and uh yeah it's been a busy holiday thing had covid it was yeah. fun what about you what was your holidays like
1: pretty quiet pretty quiet uh actually the first time In my life, I did not spend Christmas with my family. Really? So that was, yeah, that was a little bit of a bummer. The COVID, I've got a couple of high-risk family members. They live all the way across the country in the East. And I I just couldn't, you know, couldn't take the chance. And so just spent a pretty nice, quiet, chill Christmas at the house. So yeah, it was different, but necessary.
0: Yeah, man, I I can't wait till this COVID thing just, (sighs) just, I, I cannot wait till it's done. Like I hope everybody gets their vaccine. Speaking of vaccines, are you going to get a vaccine or try to at least?
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I'd get it yesterday if I could. (laughs) (laughs) But Uh, now that I'm retired, I'm no longer a first responder, right? I'm not high risk. So I'm, I'm back to the end of the line. That's okay. You know? Um, so I'm hoping to get it by April or May. We'll see.
0: Yeah. So. Uh, my, my, I'm trying to get my grandmother in there right now. And, uh, it's just, it's tough to get anybody it is. right now. So right? Even first responders, yeah. if, even if you're bumped to the front of the list, it's not a guarantee. No. Yeah. Well, anyways, enough BS and tell us about yourself.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, so yeah, so I started in 1989 with the forest service in region nine. So back East and the Northeast And was actually the first demo hire on my forest. That was when demo was just starting and was hired as a forester trainee. Um, and, uh, yeah, and loved it. Got in the forest service, but the Allegheny national forest is an asbestos forest. Not a lot of fire going on there. And so did little, you know, we literally have five fires a year on, on my district. That was about it. If we were lucky. So it was a big deal. Yeah. And, um, then it literally took till 1994 for me to be able to go on a Western fire assignment. Um, um, as as those of us older remember, we didn't have big fire seasons every year back then. And so 94, we all know, is a big fire season. And they were tapping crews from the eastern United States and got to go on a, a Type 2 IA crew. And that was my first, you know, full three-week assignment western assignment on a type 2 ia crew and i just was hooked i i was like this is for me and so um yeah that was kind of the beginning and trying to then get out of forestry and you know and more into full-time fire so i went on the Asheville Hotshots nice and 96 and then went to um florida worked in florida for five years which is was a just a fricking blast because all year round fire season, my district alone, we prescribed burned a hundred thousand acres a year. The only month we did not prescribe burn was March. Um, and so that's where I just learned so much about fire behavior and really grew to love fuels and prescribed burn and bought and drank the Kool-Aid about all of that, you know, good fire. And, um, yeah. And so then went from there to Utah. I went to the uinta Wasatch Cast as a fuel specialist. Um, from there, I went to the Klamath as chief two. Um, then back east to the National Forest in North Carolina as the Forest FMO. And then in 2017, ended up back in the west uh, on the Umpqua National Forest, where I just retired on December
0: 31st. Oh, congratulations. That's awesome. You know, yeah. you said something pretty interesting right there uh, regarding like big fire seasons, right? You, you've never mm-hmm. had a big fire season until that big one of 94. And we all know that's a year South Canyon. That's what happened that year, right? Right. Kind of setting a precedent as far as a tragedy fire goes. And we predicate a lot of our SOPs off of these tragedy fires, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. What have, else have you seen change in your years of fire? Cause you've got some salt in the game. You've been, you've been around <laughs> since 89, right? Yeah. You've, you've seen it all. So what are you yeah. seeing currently with the fire regime from then to now?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I mean, I think most of us in this profession are starting to see and understand the role of climate change. We can argue the causes I'd rather not, um, because that, I think there's still some controversy there, but we know it's happening. We're starting to see the longer fire seasons, right? The larger fires, the harder to control fires. Um, and so seeing that as a gradual, you know, since I've been in that long and seeing that as a felt more gradual, um, and kind of saw that was coming. So, you know, going from where a big, a big fire, like we were just, we were just, turning in our um, fire experience records right to fire training and we were looking at the the responder sheet you fill out and you write down the fires you run this year and the class and <laughs> it's a b c d e i think are the five classes of a fire so like an a is less than an acre right the largest is. 500 acres or more <laughs> and someone said maybe we need to adjust the class of the <laughs> fires because you know at one time that was a big fire and now that's like nothing
0: yeah it's nothing now. um
1: yeah nothing and so that's kind of funny you know to look at this form that hasn't involved with that um, but we didn't When we talk about people and getting fire experience, it took a lot of those. You had to wait a couple of years for that big fire season. Right. And so to get the campaign fire, the project fire and maybe work on some of your quals. And that certainly accelerated. And and when you hear some of the old farts complain about the younger generations and, you know, I always like, well, they're getting more fires, you know, about even being fast tracker. Well, it took me 15 years to get division and this guy's got it in five. Well, yeah, he's fighting these huge fricking fires all year round, or at least a big part of the season, they're getting more opportunities to get that experience. So that certainly changed. Um, I think, obviously, I mean, we can look at um, the South Canyons. a great example of how the agencies did investigations after a a tragedy fire or a large escape prescribed fire, you know, it was the witch hunt. It was the horrible, it was some ways, sometimes the enduring the investigation was, I've heard people, I've been on a bad escape prescribed fire and that was almost more traumatic than the event, right? And so those were dark days, I think. And if people study South Canyon, there was one of the um, team members, Ted Putnam, and he was a kind of a human factor specialist, which nobody heard of and nobody talked about back then. He refused to sign the report because he saw that they were blaming the firefighters who died or survived, right? And he knew that was really, really messed up. And he was like, "These are human beings. We make mistakes. We're fallible." They were doing anything anybody else would do. And now we're blaming them for this. And he's like, I won't sign it, which was huge at the time. If you get your hands on an original copy of the South Kenya report, his name's on it and the signature line, and there's no signature.
0: It's left blank.
1: It's left blank. And man, I was like, that guy's my hero, right? This guy is standing up saying this is wrong. And he could have had some pretty serious consequences to his career, but he was towards the end of his career, extremely well, well respected. He later wrote about it. Um, and and, you know, I, it took people like him to say this is wrong what we're doing. This is wrong what we're doing to people. And this isn't the way to go about it. And I think that was also then one of the big that and 30 Mile were the big shifts away from blaming and investigations and ruining people's careers to to a learning culture. So I would say just the shift from investigations to more of a learning culture is probably to me one of the most important pivotal changes we've seen, a good change and um, we've made a lot of progress with it. There's still some, you know, some work to do on that, but I I when I was on the Uinta Wasatch Cache we had a really bad escape prescribed fire we smoked in Salt Lake City. We actually they had to cancel a BYU football game. <laughs> um, they almost closed the Salt Lake City airport. I mean, it was a bad deal. We burned eight thousand acres onto private land. Luckily, nobody got hurt. We didn't lose any structures. And we had the good old fashioned investigation, and and they did the kind of looking at the fire and the burn plan and and all that. And then they do the, they did an administrative investigation to determine disciplinary action. And I remember getting a call and I was the, I was the ignition specialist and said, Oh, you have, you're scheduled for an interview. It was right before Thanksgiving. And you have to go to the Marriott and, and literally it was an investigator with an actual badge. And I had to swear. Like a law
0: enforcement badge?
1: Yeah. And, um two people in this hotel room to take my statement to determine the punishment that we would get. And I was like, <laughs> you know, this is messed up. Nobody told me this was coming. I mean, nobody told us that was the next step. I had no idea. And um so I go in this little hotel room and get the badge and the swear, and they start taking my statement, and they didn't know anything about fire. and um, That was that was that was fucking horrible. And um, and I I think it was the first one of of the group to get my interview. And I didn't have any disciplinary action. I'd tell you if I did. But the burn boss, um, I think he got his quals knocked back. The district ranger actually got a letter. I mean, I think those were the only two disciplinary action that came out of it. Those of us practitioners, you know, except for the burn boss, but he was a district ranger. He wasn't full-time fire. He was a type one burn boss. He was actually a district ranger on a neighboring district. But anyway, so that was my first example into the, you know, the terrible world of investigations. And I was just like, this is, man, this is messed up. (laughs) You know, we're out here trying to do really good work and You know, we had a mishap, we had a wind shift and a problem and and uh, and yeah, so I had, you know, from working in Florida with all the prescribed fire, if we had an escape, it was no big deal. If we if the fire crossed the swamp or jump jumped the road, we just burned the next compartment out. And I was I was used to that. I was used to, well, you just catch it at the next road, just catch it at the next thing, right? Because the work is important and what we do, this is important work. And so then I go to Utah, and uh, it was completely different, and I was just like, what's happening here? So I became pretty vocal about it, pretty outspoken, and actually spoke at FUDA in and, and a couple of meetings, and I was just like, this is, you know, this is just BS. This is crap, and I think a few people listened, <laughs> and, and it was all part of then, like I said, you know, then um, Kramer Fire happened, uh, I think, a year or two later, right, and that was also a, a pretty, that was same region I was working in and, and, you know, same kind of thing. Um, people got, you know, uh, I think, you know, there were some bad things that went down there and one guy literally had charges against him and, 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 um, ruined his career. Um, and so and then 30 mile was in that long after and we all know the shit show that was. And so anyway, so enough people in the right positions, you know, we're just like, we can't we just can't keep doing this. This is wrong. And we we've, we've got to do right by people. And we've got to have people not be afraid to tell us what happened and not be afraid to speak up and say, um, I learned this or could have done it better this way. And so, so yeah. Kind of a long story there, but but I think that's been a pretty big deal. And the people who didn't work under those conditions and didn't experience that you know they've only heard the stories but it, it, you know I think those were really dark days for the fire service back then
0: and that's one th- uh, topic that you brought up here too is like you've seen the way things don't work you've seen the tragedies right. the, the, the absolute horror stories like you're saying i mean i know i could probably name five or six ic's off the top of my head at least in my region that carry personal liability insurance mm-hmm just because mm-hmm. of these things, you know, cause they're always, I mean, the investigation process, it's <laughs> like you said, it's, <laughs> it's hardcore. It's a witch hunt and they're looking for someone to blame, to alleviate, I guess, agency responsibility potentially. Right. I mean, maybe, right. I don't know, but that's the thing that yeah. is like, you've seen what hasn't worked in the past and you've seen what makes things better. So what works, what doesn't work?
1: Well, I think, um, you know, if if people have studied just culture, learning cultures, you know, there's some great books out there, reason and and things. And if so if we talk about a learning culture, and we all talk about that, right? FLA, like we're a learning culture. Well, it's lip service unless you're really a learning culture. And and you can't be a learning culture unless you have a just culture. And that's a place where people feel safe to say, I screwed up, I made a mistake could have done it differently, right? And not force them to do it, but make it where people volunteer to speak up about their own mistakes or to have a good discussion about what could have been done differently. And, you know, ARs are a great example of of the kind of first initial shift to that. And, um, but to hold it within the group, right? The group who experienced it, so there's not a fear of reprisal from coming from outside that group. and so I think that the right way to do it is, and again, you can't just say, well, we're a learning culture and it's a just culture. You have to show it. You have to make it a safe place for people to speak up and and not have consequences and not have reprisal and not have it affect their career. And um, and it becomes very obvious if you're working in an environment that maybe only talks about it, but doesn't you know, walk that talk. And um, and there's still there's still people out there who want someone to blame, who want someone to be held accountable and to pay the price. And um, and I you know I just tell people to run screaming from those bosses or managers or line officers. You know that's not the place to work. Um, and so what works is the people also involving the people who were involved in the mishap to learn from it and maybe change the things that need to be changed. And, um, you know, cause it used to be the GS Fantastics who were going, well, we got to change this. We need to do this. And they'd never asked the people who are actually doing the work or experienced the bad day. Right. And I think that has shifted too. we see more diversity in these really critical working groups and, um, you know, asking the hot shop soups and, you know, this, this past year with COVID is a really great example. I was on some, zoom meetings and teams meetings that some of the Nemo folks had set up to get lessons learned. And they were asking engine captains and hotshot soups to get on these calls with You know, command and general staff from the Nemo groups and agency administrators. What's working? What's not working? You know, a lot of the logistical stuff. What can we do better? And so, to you know, to shift to actually ask the people who are experiencing it instead of saying we know what's best for them. So yeah, it's it's talking to the people doing the work, experiencing things at the pointy end of the spear or at the flamey end of the drip torch, and then incorporating and listening and taking the action on what they say. That's the right way to do it. And I'll tell you, you know, Brandon, the DOI agencies still do investigations. It's in their policy. The Forest Service literally changed the wording in their policy and the word investigation is no longer in there. It's coordinated response protocol and learning. And so the DOI agencies, I'm going to be blunt, they have a little catch up to do with that too.
0: You know, it's it's kind of weird though because, like you said, uh, well, kind of you alluded to. There's definitely a a a culture of fear. There's a culture of reprisal, and it still has not gone away. Right, you've seen it. I've seen it in the eleven short years that I was working in the in fire. And it's true. Mm -hmm. It's it's true. But like you said, I think that we need to be listening to the boots on the ground, that GS3 and GS4 level, and somehow trying to get that bumped up the line to where it's actually meaning a difference, probably at the middle level line leadership areas, you know, your FMOs, your AFMOs, because they're the intermediaries between, you know, your GS fantastic and your boots on the ground.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, to seek out the people, like you said, in those positions who value that, who value, the fresh eyes on something, you know, the GS3, sometimes some of the most amazing things come out of their mouths. Right. And if they're reluctant or afraid to speak up, you're not going to get that really awesome nugget from this really fresh set of eyes, right. Looking at something going, why do you do that? (laughs) (laughs) And so, and so you have to, you know, as people move up into the organization, into, um, you know, more of a, Work leader, or then an official supervisor, you know, to remember that and to value that. And we all, you know, when we're moving up into our first, you know, job with responsibility, you know, we're kind of a little full of ourselves. I think it's just human nature, and we want to prove that we deserve to be there, and we might be a little bit of cocky, and that's that's okay. And a lot of people that goes away finally. Um, but you know, to be able to constantly foster that environment where you do listen and you do value what people have to say. And it's one thing to say, yeah, I want to hear what you had to say and let them say it. But if you never follow through or incorporate or respond to those things, then it also, it dies on the vine and people stop, stop even offering that up to you and stop, stop speaking up. So it really, it's something that I, I think you just have to be mindful of to continue to try to cultivate that environment
0: yeah, it's a good thing to do. Um, especially when you're moving up. As I had a, had a mentor one time and said, Don't you lose your fire. And I'm like, okay, cool. Don't lose your fire. That's really cliche and dumb. But <laughs> then he explained it. We had a couple beers one night and he explained it. It's like, no, it's like never forget where you came from. I bet right. when you're a, a you know last tool, monkey paw, you know, last in <laughs> the line, you wanted to be heard. you wanted to like, hey there's this, but you have all these levels of leadership in between you. So you don't want to open your mouth. You don't want to say anything, but when you get to that, that point where you're actually making decisions, you can't lose that fire. You have to understand the perspective of that rookie or that last tool in the dig, you know, you you can't lose that. It's going to die on the vine. Just like you said.
1: Yeah. You have to remember what that felt like to not have any power. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I remember, you know, just being like when I was, you know, firefighter two on a Type Two IA crew, and not knowing what the hell was going on, right, and being really frustrated with that. I, you know, I I had, you know, we all had a great crew boss as well. Had not so great, and remembering one of them who just held all the info because it was power, right?
0: Yeah, which and is a shitty for no way other of reason. doing business.
1: Yeah. Right. For no other reason and didn't share that information. And 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 so I've always also tried to share everything I could. And if I couldn't at least tell people why I couldn't share it, you know, and so, yeah, that's remembering how that felt to feel like you're in the in the dark and you don't know what's going on. And nobody will tell you anything, <laughs> you know, and remember what that felt like. It didn't feel very good.
0: That's no, a good. It's a good lesson to keep when you start moving up the chain, especially if it's someone who's in your position before you retired. I mean, that's that's pretty up there.
1: Yeah, yeah. I never thought I'd get that far, so that's pretty good.
0: <laughs> no one <ever> does. <laughs> but yeah, it's another thing too. Is like over the years, in mean, the eleven short years that I've been in, uh, was in fire past tense was. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of changes, and I've seen a probably the the, I guess you could say the ass end of the shut up and dig mentality. The old school mentality into that like median progressive. I mean, it's still making a lot of changes, but there needs to be a lot. There needs a lot of work uh, to be done still. And especially in the context of women in fire. Mm -hmm. I have the utmost respect for women in fire from strictly a biological point. And that's like my my, one of my bases. And some of the women I've worked with are most incredible firefighters I've ever worked with. Like uh, I'm going to shout her name out, but Alyssa, who was one of the best... Rookies, and she knows who I who she is. <laughs> She's one of the best rookies I ever, ever could uh, work with, it or ever ask for. She was dialed. She was on it. The thing, though, is that I I never really realized is I I, I try and treat everybody as equal, but from a biological standpoint, women mm-hmm. have to put in two, if not three times the amount of work to get the same physiological response, and that's strictly right. because of hormones. So this right. job if you women out there are doing this job, I have the utmost respect for you because it is fucking hard. Yeah. it is.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, like you said, a lot of it's just sheer biology. Right. And when you talk about strength and things like that, and so having to earn, have to, having to really work hard to show you earn that place there. Right. And, um, and it's you know it's tough and even when i you know i was on the actual hotshots in 96 which doesn't seem like as long ago that it was right and i remember there were there were three women on the crew and like there was a 19 year old guy who we overheard talking about you know there shouldn't women shouldn't be allowed to fight fire Did you tell him to,
0: <laughs> <laughs> to shut the fuck up i would have told him to shut the fuck up
1: well, and, and what was cool is the older guys kind of shut them down. Good. Because they're like, you haven't even worked with it. Any- you're like so wet behind the ears. You're just out of high school. We have, and there's some badass women and you don't even know what you're talking about, right? And so that was cool. That was cool to see the guys intervene on the behalf of the women to say, you know, you're full of crap and and, and all that. So, and And I think that's what, You know, when I look back over my career, having men go to bat for me, stand up for me, you know, sometimes was what made the difference. Right. And, um, you know, to this to this day, you know, when I've dealt with, you know, I was telling somebody that every single fire I went on when I started going out as a single resource, you know, as I moved up in my calls, every single fire I went on, I had to deal with some kind of bullshit from some idiot guy. And it was often, you know, the guys intervening to shut that down, um, which was really, first of all, a really cool thing to see because, you know, I'm their sister and they're sticking up for me. And, um, and yeah, I mean, it's just astounding. Like I'm even a division soup and I've got a dozer boss hitting on me in my chain of command. (laughs) It's just like, what are you doing?
0: (laughs) Wow, dude. Come on. Pump the brakes, bud.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, yeah, so it's been, you know, it's a challenge and, and in some ways, um, I'm pretty frustrated because the number of women in fire are, are really going down in a, in a pretty steep decline. Um, if you look at official numbers and I've seen the official numbers from HR, and there are fewer women in fire now than there were 15 years ago. So I had a lot more women role models that I saw in fire assignments and in in jobs than the women coming up now see. And that worries me because they're not seeing then these women in these positions or qualifications or out on the fire line to aspire to go, hey, man, I can do that. She's badass. Right. So there's some there's the, the agencies, the, the agencies have a lot of work to do with that still ahead of them.
0: So what do you think is the reasoning behind that decline? Do you think there's any particular reason that stands out to you or do you think it's just random or do you think it's just kind of, it's kind of stereotyped as a male dominated industry, which it, I mean, it is a male dominated industry. Let's just call a spade a yeah. spade. But do you, right. do you think there's any reasons?
1: I think, you know, I, I, some of, some of us talk about this, like trying to put our finger on it because management's trying to figure it out. Right. And, I feel like upper management at the regional Washington office level keep focusing on recruitment and it's not a recruitment issue because people involved in fire hire, temp hire, there are a lot of women applying as temporaries entry level, first time men. Right. And it's what we're seeing then in perm fire hire at the seven, eight, nine level. That's where we're losing women. Right. So it's a retention problem. And I think that for a woman who wants to work in a outdoors, physically challenging, you know, this kind of profession. First of all, I think there are more alternatives for for doing that kind of work than there were before, right? There are more opportunities, more other jobs like that. Um, I also think that, you know, the women who even came up before me, the women in the seventies, you know, who were really Blazing the trails, first woman hotshot, first woman smoke jumper. You know, I think they also felt this sense of responsibility that I've got to do this for the women behind me. I've got to put up with this crap to make it easier for the next woman. And I think a lot of women now, they're just not willing to do that. They're not willing to put up with the shit. They're just not willing to do it. I can, shit, I can go work for the Nature Conservancy, right? Or I can go work for a a private environmental company if I want to work in the outdoors. Um, And I just think a lot of them aren't willing to do it anymore, aren't willing to sacrifice and have to put up with a lot of crap. I also think um, as more women get into um, this profession and as they have partners, primarily if it's a male partner, Um, They have professions too. And um, so they may not be as mobile to escape a crappy situation, right? Because they've got a spouse who has a career in this part of the country that they have to be there for. Um, Whereas when, you know, the early days of the male dominated profession in the forest service, you know, a lot of stay at home wives, or they were in more um, like teaching nursing that they could get the job no matter where they went right? There were more opportunities for these spouses to these women who are wives to get a job, be able to follow the husband if they still wanted to have that kind of a career. And we don't have that anymore. We have much more diverse. We have, like I said, you know, spouses with careers and jobs, and then you can't just pick up and go if it's a crappy situation. Um, So I think that's another one. I think um, the struggle for women who want to start families um because you know you got to kind of take a break and some women are able to do it you know they have good support they have family that can help you know help if they go on a fire assignment you know the kids get older but not everybody has that and so since a lot of women move into the, not the operational jobs right because it, it's family friendly they don't, if i'm a prevention tech i don't have to go on a fire assignment right yeah. i can do my job i can stay here and I don't have to, no one else is depending on me. I'm not on a crew. I'm not on a mod. You know, I'm not an engine or hell attack. I'm just this person doing my prevention job. I can, I can take a break and stay home with my kids right for a while or fuels or dispatch.
0: about to say and dispatch um, is one of those big ones. I know a lot of women that, you know, they wanted to have kids and it's mm-hmm. hard to raise a kid when you are gone. You can't be a part-time parent and that's for both, both <laughs> men and women, you know, it's, right. it's equal but i know a lot of people that work their ass off to get their dispatch quals and they go to that while yeah. the husband goes to be the hotshot for 6 months out of the year
1: right and and i think if gosh if both if both people are in fire yeah i mean they can't both be gone all the time and have a family and so you know they're just then we do fall fall back into some of those more traditional roles where it's you know more of the expectation that the the wife, the mom, you know, kind of takes that, stays home with the kids, you know, and um, it just kind of is what it is. And, and we don't, like, I had a really good friend, we were on the Hotshot crew together, and she was in fuels in Idaho. And her husband was, he he was in aviation, and they decided to start a family. And she, you know, took her six months off to stay home with her, raise her son. And then she was ready to go back to work, but she wanted to go back part-time. And there was another woman in a similar situation in fuels and they, they came up with a job share. Like we could do this job full time and each of us could work part time though, and be able to stay home a little bit more with our kids. They worked it out, made this proposal and Suzanne, she was like, she won the fuels person of the year for region four. Like she was a rock star, man. She was freaking rock star. And the agency wouldn't accommodate her or this other person. They wouldn't even consider it. They wouldn't even
0: give it the time of day, huh?
1: Wouldn't oh. even get it the time of day. And like I said, she was a high performer. She was a proven go-getter. She was an awesome employee. And she resigned. They let her go, you know, and it was just astounding. I remember talking to her about it. And we just, you know, and there were some there were some people in the agency who fought for her like our regional fuels guy tried to talk to her forest and they just wouldn't budge. You just wouldn't do it. And sure. That was, you know, in the early two thousands, but, um, but, you know, it's just, it's just a challenge. And I just think, you know, a lot of women I've talked to are just like, I'm just not, whether it's a family or whether it's putting up with, you know, gender discrimination, biases, whatever, they're just tired. And they're like, I'm. it's not worth my mental health anymore. And I just think people are more women are more willing to just walk away and find a different work environment, which is unfortunate, right? I want to talk them all into staying. You know, I'm like, no, please stay. Hey, please, please, <laughs> please. You're awesome. We need more women. But when it comes down to like they're saying, my mental health is is suffering, my family life is suffering. I can't do this anymore. This job is not worth it. I you can't argue with that, right? I'm not gonna talk them talk try and talk them out of that.
0: No, it's that's not. If they've already made up their mind, you can see that look on their face, too. If they've already made up their mind, it's just not worth trying to convince them because their mind is already made up. Right. Yeah. It's just interesting to hear. I mean, what are some other uh, unique challenges that women face in the fire service? Because obviously, I can't speak to it because I'm a dude. So. Yeah. I'm kind of, I'm, yeah. I, I'm just going I'm, to, I'm naive to the subject. So I really, I know I've seen like some bullshit that's gone down. I've seen some and heard some stories that are just absolute atrocities, you know? Right. But as far as like the nitty gritty stuff, I don't know anything about it because I'm blind to it. Yeah. I'm not a woman. No.
1: And that's, that's really good. And, and, and I appreciate, someone like you and I've heard from other men who are like, help us, you know, help us help you, you know, tell us your stories. What, what, what do we need to do? And, um, and I think like I tell people, cause you know, I was always, I was always kind of a outspoken type, a woman. Right. And, um, and I remember, I remember one time when I was on the hotshot crew and we were on a fire in Texas and, and we're in fire camp. And this guy look over and they're assembling the lunches and this guy, he's a crew boss off a, off another crew, a type two crew. And he's high grading out of the prepared lunches. You know, he's picking like, he's looking, he's, he's rat, fucking. Stuff. He's rat <laughs> yeah. fucking out of the sack exactly. lunches. And we're I'm sitting there eating, we're eating breakfast, with the crew, and I look over and see this guy, and I went just yelled at, "Hey, what are you doing? Get your, you know, get out of those lunches." And the Sue, is like Duncan, <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, and "Oh, I'm shit, busted, here we go, you know? oh crap, <laughs> push ups." Calls me over and he's like, "Hey, good job calling that asshole out, man." Yeah, he's like, "Good on you." So I was like, I was kind of, you know, "quote unquote" rewarded for like kind of taking an initiative, calling somebody out. Right. Yeah. So I thought that that was a good thing to do. (laughs) And, and then I learned, um, as I went forward into the world that that wasn't always appreciated and, um,
0: depends on who it is.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And so I tell people, you know, when I'm trying to talk about this, it's kind of the, um, it's for women, it's the damned if we do damned if we don't. So you know, if you're if you're more of a Type A like I am, and you're more direct and and speak up, you know, then we get labeled as bossy, or well, she's a bitch, or um, she's too aggressive, or you know, she's too loud, she's too harsh. I've had all those things said about me, where I think I'm modeling the desirable leadership traits, right, yeah. that I've seen from my mentors and the people I looked up to, and that some people appreciated, right. So then that's that's tough. That's the nitty gritty. And then you've got the opposite where maybe you have more of a quiet, um, you know, non type a woman. And um, I've seen the women like this, the quiet leader. You know, there are men who are like that too, the quiet leaders. Um, but then I hear them. Well, she's not she doesn't exhibit enough uh, uh, leadership. She doesn't have command presence. Not she assertive have enough. This. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and so then it's like, well, what do you? Which one do you want? Because <laughs> the the person who the people who do have it were well, their bitches, you know. But you're saying the ones who don't have it, well, they're not, you know, bitch enough. Is that what you're saying? And so, that's, <laughs> what do you want from me? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think that's just, you know, I watch that and I see that. And it's like, well, shit, we can't win, right? We can't win no matter what. And so what did, What do you need us to do? And um, and so I think that there are a lot of really awesome, cool dudes out there who do see um, the different things that women bring and they cultivate it and they seek it. Like my hotshot soup had spent his entire career in Region 5 on hotshot crews and engines and then started up the Asheville hotshots, you know, in Region 8 and he was like i love having women on the crew he's like i freaking hate the testosterone poisoning of the uh, bro crew fest. With 20, yeah with crew 20 dudes and um and they're you know they and so we know they're out there and that's really awesome but i just see it to this day like on just before i retired in my forest and 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 people putting women into the box of you're either this or you're that and neither one of them are acceptable. And, and, it, and it's, you know, that if you hear this buzzword, um, unconscious bias, and it's a real thing, it really is a real thing. And I think some people don't even realize they're doing it. And I think that's the harder thing to overcome, is when people aren't doing it out of a malicious thing, they're not trying to be an asshole, they're, they, they're not, um, they don't think they're doing anything wrong. Um, that's the harder stuff to overcome and break. It's, and then none of this stuff is easy. Like, I'm not saying that this stuff is easy and should be able to do that and change it. It's hard work. It's hard. I have my own unconscious biases, right? I've had to, had to check myself and everybody and does. I, I remember not liking girly girls in fire, right? Cause I didn't think that that were, they were showing that they were serious enough about it and it was giving us all a bad name. And I had to overcome that. Right. That my bias against more girly girls. So,
0: huh. Yeah. I, I wonder if it's also a point of naivety. Like I was saying, I wonder if that's kind of expanded across, uh, you know, if you're to multiply that naivety as far as not mm-hmm. knowing how to approach it or it's it's kind of rare. It's sometimes it's rare in certain regions to see a woman in fire. Yeah, Some regions it is. It, it just is. So how do we right. open up that discussion? I mean, do you think it's like a, a group naivety of like, we don't know how to communicate properly or we don't know what to expect or anything like that? I mean, I may, might be getting off in the weeds here, but do you think it might be something along the lines of that as well?
1: Yeah, no, I think, I think you're onto something, Brandon, with that. And I think it's just, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just cause we're raised that way in the agency. Right. And and I, I I think it's like getting into that naivety. Don't even know we're doing it. Right. Um, and people. So then people have to be willing to speak up and ask to have that conversation. And um, some people are willing to do it. And I've had people reach out to me like, well, I don't know if you remember. Um, when Travis Dotson with the Wildland Lessons Learned Center wrote that essay about how he started to see things differently through the lens of being a dad to a three-year-old little girl. Right. And he wrote this essay about, man, I was, I was a dick, right, man. I did some shitty stuff to women. And now I've got this three-year-old girl who's telling me she wants to be a firefighter, like daddy. And he's going, no. (laughs) (laughs) So he wrote, he wrote this awesome, really heartfelt, vulnerable, laid himself bare about it and he got attacked he got trashed oh yeah i mean he got dragged through the mud you know like some of his buddies said he was betraying the men and all this stuff you know and he was shocked he didn't see this coming he didn't see this backlash coming
0: oh you know but they were they were afraid that he was betraying the men why did you check that fragile little fucking ego man you serious right
1: Right. And that you have and, to be really
0: um, insecure to think like totally. That. Yeah. Anyways, sorry.
1: No, but, but he had also, then he had the group going to bat for him, right? The people going right on, brother. I've done it too. And I've, I've been a part of the problem. You know, for a guy to stand up and say, I've been part of the problem. I was that guy. I was a jerk, man, to these women. And whatever made them make that shift, you know, I don't care what it was. I'm glad it's happened, you know? And so that also brought out those kinds of conversations. And, and I think it just takes, again, people who are willing to have those tough conversations, whether you're a hotshot soup or a district ranger, right? I remember trying to hire, because, you know, I'm in region eight. I was, a, you know, like I said, I was in North Carolina and region eight very few women in fire operations and it's a it's probably the toughest region I've worked in. I worked there twice um, to be a women a woman for me. Um, and and I remember I was trying to hire this gal into an engine position, and she was from Idaho. And she had done she had been down she had done some details in Region A. She'd come down to PFTC, you know, done a lot of burning. And she was just great. I mean, her resume and her interview and all this and. A woman ranger who I respected the hell out of didn't pick her, even though she was by far and above the most qualified fire quals, all of it didn't pick her and said, well, I don't think she's a good fit. And I said, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, it's these pretty conservative guys that she'd have to be working with. And
0: <laughs> oh God.
1: Yeah. And I remember standing in the parking lot having this conversation with her. And I was just like, do you hear what you're saying? Like, can you hear yourself what you're saying? And she was, you know, she got pissed because I was calling her out on it. And so it's not just men, you know, it's not only, uh, you know, a, a, all men doing this, you know, and and I was just like, listen to what you're saying. Listen to yourself, please. You have this bias, you know, and um. And literally, I was the National Forest in North Carolina, therefore National Forest managed by one SO. We had eight ranger districts. We had one of the largest fire programs. We had 11 engines, hotshot crew, helicopter, dozers, tractor plows. We didn't have any. I was the only woman, <laughs> permanent woman in fire operations. We had women in dispatch and a incident business a, a specialist. That was it. That's it. Yeah, that was it.
0: Sounds diverse. In,
1: <laughs> right. In 2016. And I'm trying to hire a GS6 woman on an engine and she's not a good fit. You know, so, so yeah. God, man. Yeah. So yeah, it's, guys, we've got to, like I said, we got to get past that naivety and the, the, whatever is telling us that this person isn't a good fit. I, you know, you can, that's been used against people who are minorities, right? That's oh, yeah. been used against you know, African-Americans or um, Asians or whatever. You hear that all the time. And I I started to push back on that my last job. And I would say, I don't want to hear this. I don't want to hear that they're not a good fit. I don't trust that, what you're telling me with that anymore. I need to hear specifically why you don't want to hire them, right? Yeah. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's, it's weird though. I, I wonder if it's like a generational thing too, because I mean... I mean, I was, I'm, I was raised by, you know, very traditional parents, you know, they, my, both my parents worked, but they had it in their mind that, you know, dad goes and works and mom should be taking care of the kids. Right. Do you think it might be yeah. one of those things that just is one of those things that needs to slowly die as a generational aspect?
1: Yeah, I do think there's something to be said for that for certain. Um, it's just like you said, it's kind of the cultural norm still. Um And, you know, I think that's part of it. And that's like, again, these things are, you know, these things aren't easy. This, this making these shift, you know, say it's like turning the Titanic, right? It's like turning a, uh, you know, cruise ship. Um, It's not easy and it's not going to happen quickly. But when, you know, we're seeing instead of progress, we're seeing, you know, regress, you know, should be getting people's attention. And I don't feel like, it's getting enough people's attention to really say what's going on here and what do we need to do differently? You
0: know? Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, the whole dynamic is, is changing and not only just for women in fire issues, but just the forest service or the agencies, all the agencies together as a whole. And I think people are becoming more empowered and more vocalized about these efforts of changing things. So I want to see that continue to increase in these older, I guess, Idealisms that just go downhill You know, like these old mentalities Just slowly die (laughs) Because they need to
1: Yeah, yeah Well, and I think a really good example of that In just general society Is like the LGBTQ community
0: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, like my I have nephews, you know, who are like Late teens, early 20s And they have outwardly open, you know, gay friends They don't even think twice about it They don't even it's not even a thing, right?
0: Oh, why does it matter? So
1: that's right. Doesn't matter. Yeah. They don't care. And I think that's a really good illustration of the generations coming up that you know kind of busting through that stuff. They don't really give a crap, right? We're seeing even in the in the agency, we see more, um, you know, LGBTQ who are out out and open with it, mm-hmm. right? Because we all we all knew people who were kind of on the DL in the early days and it was risky and they couldn't take, you know, it was putting themselves at professional personal risk to be able to speak up. Now you see people who are married, right? And um so that's a really good shift that gives me hope, you know, that we can get past some some of that stuff. And and yeah, so yeah, you're right. I think I think the I have, you know, like I mentioned earlier, you know, I, I always get frustrated the old farts well we you know the youngsters had it so much easier than we did oh my god you know we listen and oh they don't they have it so easy and they don't know hardship and 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 oh my god you know the millennials and i i've never been that way like i have so much respect for these younger generations coming up and they give me hope you know they're they're so smart and they're so outspoken and they're so open and they're creative and they're making these changes and so You know, I think they're going to they're going to be the ones to, like I said, make the make the good changes that we can all be proud of. And so I have a lot of hope for the next generations coming up. I think we're in really good hands with that. It's it's breaking down, like you said, the old guard and the old norms and the old, um, you know, attitudes that I think we have to do. And maybe as people just generally migrate towards retirement, you know, we have the cycle. Maybe that's what's going to get us there.
0: It might. I mean, it's not really like setting those old mentalities out to, you know, out to pasture per se, but I think it's more or less of building upon the foundation that they laid. Because that's what every generation yeah. does. The generation, they either fix the fuck ups of the generation that preceded them or they build upon it or something. And usually a lot of times it's both. So yeah. to say right. that millennials or Zennials or whoever is without hardship, it's really intellectually dishonest because we have to pick up the pieces and build upon what our previous generation laid before us.
1: Right. And every generation cacked on the one, you know, (laughs) below them. (laughs) So, and we all, we all did fine. Right. So
0: yeah, we're good ish. Yeah. 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 Good ish. Good ish. There's some, you know, there's some stuff in the media right now that I don't want to get into, but Hey, that's, you know, hopefully it'll all pan out. But <laughs> no, there's, there's good change on the horizon. I think, uh, one of those things that you're involved with too is, uh, and myself involved with is, uh, the grassroots organization. I think they're, uh, kind of become this powerhouse of, uh, advocacy, which is cool. So you're involved with them and now explain your role.
1: Yeah. So I was kind of uh, late to the party with that. Um, but glad I finally got there and started seeing, you know, the, 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 on social media from the grassroots groups. And, um, was like, wow, this is cool. want to be a part of this, you know, reaching out, um, and talking to some of the, the folks who really putting the work and effort into that. And, um, so I definitely support what the grassroots group is trying to do about the whole forestry technician and mental health and things like that. And so, um, started interacting, you know, getting on some emails, getting on some socials that you've been a part of and social media. And um, then I wrote a couple of essays about it. I uh, was one of the um, recipients of an American wildfire experience, microgrant, Grant. Mm-hmm. And so I set up a blog and my initial intent was to just write from the perspective of, you know, like a fire staff officer, FMO chief, um about what it's like to be in our shoes, right? And um and then I did I did start out doing that, but then I was also able to incorporate some of you know what this group is trying to do that I support and how I see it to provide some more information to reinforce um the necessary changes that we think need to happen that we're asking to happen that we're asking the agencies to do. And I was pretty fortunate because you know, I knew I was at the end of my career and they're like when we were talking earlier about fear of reprisal and fear of speaking up, you know, that's a, and how that's a real thing. And some of the folks involved in that certainly have that fear. They're earlier in their careers. They're at lower GS levels. Um, they're right to have that discomfort and fear. But I, you know, I'm at the end of my career. I can be the person that can say a lot of that stuff. Yeah. And hopefully also being at my level, I have a little bit of credibility with that. And so, you know, ways that I could help daylight and get that information out there, um, get support from the non-FIRE community, right? And so that was kind of just a, a way that I could do that, a way that I could, you know, bring some attention to that, share the information, share some, some, like I said, some facts, some data, some information and um yeah so so it's really cool to be involved in that and to stay involved in that um after retirement and um i hope i'm able to continue to contribute and and like i said have a positive effect on that
0: oh absolutely and yeah we'll we'll talk a little bit more in depth about that after we stop rolling because of you know there's some confidentiality things that we got to have yeah. on there because there's like you said there's a serious fear of reprisal and i do know that there is you know, active duty people, uh, right. in that group. And they're just like, it's, it's kind of cool because it's like a guerrilla warfare kind of tactic. Yeah. And yeah. I, I'm just so happy to see the amount of success that it has taken off with. Cause I didn't, right. we, nobody on the, on the, uh, board of directors, nobody anticipated that. And to see it take off like that, it's really satisfying. So, but yeah, it's, yeah. It, yeah. And
1: to see elected officials becoming interested and in kind of taking uh-huh. up the cause. Right. Um, and, uh, I think we're getting some traction, but I will tell you this, you don't know this. Um, but I actually had an ethics violation filed against me for my blog.
0: I know. I I heard about that. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And, you know, I did my research to make sure I didn't get into hot water with ethics um, there's actually a what you know, office of ethics, USDA, every agency has an office of ethics, right? Yeah. There's the, the overall federal, then there's the USDA office of ethics. So I had done my research to, because I didn't want to, you know, get crossways, um, when I set everything up and so thought I was in a good place for that, thought I had done my due diligence. And, um, and of course I knew I was going to ruffle feathers. That was that's the point right that that's was part. part of the point yeah. i'm trying to get people's attention um and so then i found out in a roundabout way i didn't even find out internally about it and um that i was reported for an ethics violation and someone was going around saying that i actually had it had been determined that i had violated the ethics and only the office of ethics can make that determination um, and like I said, I'm finding this out third hand from somebody outside the agency. So I emailed the office of ethics and the guy's like, yeah, we're totally familiar with your case. We've read your blog. And he said, um, I'll attach to my email is what we sent to management who complained. And he said, you didn't violate any ethics except, um, technically, the except. right. Um, except technically he said, cause you don't have on your blog where you work, you don't have your title, you know, mm-hmm. when you wrote your forestry technician, you put a disclaimer in there. That's all good. You're on the up and up, but he's said technically accepting the micro grant, um, could be seen as accepting money to then talk about your job. And he said, basically, we just told management that our advice was to tell you to give the money back and you're good. You're all good. He said, that's the point is we have to be able to inform the employee what they need to do then set things right. Well, management never told me, never came to me and said, you should do this. And I told the guy from Office of the Ethics and he was furious. He was like, are you kidding me? And I said, no. I said, I heard about it from someone outside the agency. And now you just validated that I didn't have this. I said, and they're saying that I had these. And he's like, no. And he's like, well, that makes me angry. He said, because again, you know, the idea is he informed the employee. And he said, also, I have a group of employees myself who do this work. This is what we yeah. do. And they spend time on it. And he said, so it's a waste of our time if they're not even going to act on it and and tell the employee and make things right and all that. So that was pretty frustrating um, to hear that. But again, I wasn't really as worried about reprisal, but I was I was disappointed to hear that things were being said about me that weren't true about violating ethics. Because again, I, I really wanted to make sure I didn't do that. So yeah, it's it's a a real deal.
0: Yeah. I mean, ethics violations are a serious thing. I mean, some of those ethics violations could come with jail time.
1: Right. Yeah. It's pretty serious stuff. And so, um, and if you're, you know, I didn't want my message to get lost in a controversy because I violated ethics. And that's why I really, took steps and pains to do my research and make sure I wasn't, you know, so, so yeah, a GS six guy on the grassroots group. Hell yeah. Be anonymous dude, because yeah, I don't want anything bad to happen to you. You still have a huge career ahead of you. You still have a long ways to go. And so I don't blame folks one bit for being worried and wanting to stay anonymous and work behind the scenes though, to make these changes that, that you and I know and others know are really important and need to happen.
0: Yeah. I just want to continue to see it grow and I just want to protect everybody. You know, even being on this podcast is, you know, it, it could be a potential for hot water cause I can't protect you. you know, it's right. it's like one of those things it's like, you, you don't know damn well, when you come on this show, if, uh, you're on the show. Well, don't say anything stupid. Don't put your ass in a crack. And I explicitly say that you saw the, the in brief that I give out It's pretty, oh, yeah. pretty extensive of what not to yeah. say. <laughs> and, uh, right. yeah, it's, it's just one of those things. It's, it, I don't want to see anybody lose their job over, you know, and something in passing or, you know, saying the wrong thing.
1: And even like you said, even if you don't, even if you have somebody on here who technically doesn't violate anything by what they say, but they piss someone off.
0: Oh yeah. Right. There's that reprisal.
1: Exactly. Oh, exactly. Yeah. I don't want to see that happen to people either. And, um, you know, I ended up giving Bethany Hannah, the money back from the AW microgram. So rad. because I wanted to be on the up and up. Right. Yeah. And I'm also a GS 13 and I could afford to give her the $500 back. Whereas someone else who maybe won the micro grant and they wanted to buy a really nice camera or a lens for their camera. Right. Yeah. And this was the way for them to do it. So yeah, I want I was like, I'm all about being on the up and up here, you know? And so, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a real deal. And, and I don't want to see anybody get in trouble or, or like suffer consequences because of it.
0: Yeah. It, yeah. It's the unfortunate consequence of working for uncle Sam or if you, like you said, if you piss somebody off, you know, that's even worse. <laughs> it's arguably even right. worse. But speaking about your blog, um, you had two excellent articles that really stand out to me. You have people on the edge of the night. Uh Uh-huh. And then you have, we don't need another forestry technician parts one and two. Yeah. So let's talk about those.
1: Yeah. And so we don't need another... As actually, we don't need another forestry technician hero. That's what it was. So... Yeah, a My take bad. on the old, you know, Tina Turner song. <laughs> I <laughs> think it was from Mad Max. <laughs> I
0: love that movie. And um, <laughs> movies plural.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um and so yeah, so I just had been kind of rolling around how I could talk about I wanted to try and incorporate, you know, kind of the um the trap of heroism, right? The um cuz I think there's just too much of that you know, hero worship. And so I kind of wanted to talk about that. I certainly wanted to address the problems and issues with being a forestry technician. I was trying to roll everything into one and I just couldn't make it happen. So that's why I did a part one and a part two. And part one was more of kind of setting the stage and more talking about, you know, facing fatalities and when bad things happen and, and try to highlight, you know, the risks, not just physical safety, but personal, mental, family, you know, all those risks about the job that we do, you know, and, and I don't want, I don't want someone to become a hero because they die. Right. And then, so then part two was diving deeper into the actual um, information about the whole forestry technician series And what that means or doesn't mean and how the agency has been struggling with that. And, um, you know, so I I link to actual letters and memos from chiefs of the past chiefs of the Forest Service and IFPM to kind of paint the picture for not just people within the agencies, the federal fire agencies, but the people we're trying to get to support our efforts, right? Mm Right. And so to just highlight that, again, you know, we're forestry technicians until we die. And then all of a sudden we're wildland firefighters,
0: right? I I was waiting for you to say it, but there's that old adage. We're not, we're not only, we're not firefighters until we die on, in the line of duty. And that's the sad part.
1: Yeah. And, um, and I even put in there, you know, when we were dealing with all the COVID stuff this year and, you know, when the questions are starting to be asked about if someone contracted it. How are we going to prove it so that it's OWCP if someone's, you know, because we're finding out that there are some people that are still having debilitating effects months after they have COVID. And so the importance of being being able to, you know, fill out a CA one or CA2, and is is OWCP gonna, gonna support that you contracted it in the line of duty, right? On a fire assignment or at fire, whatever. And the agency. Department of Labor, you know, who's over OWCP actually asked the Forest Service, do you want to identify them as first responders? Because if you identify them as first responders, it's going to make it a lot easier for us to say yes, that this was a work illness. And the, the Forest Service I mean they're they're handing them this on a platter to me. Yeah, um, a rare moment of Department of Labor and OBWCP actually doing something positive. That's <laughs> never
0: happened in the history right. of any agency.
1: Never happens, but here they do it right. Yeah, and the Forest Service says no, we're not going to do that. You know, we yeah, we know they're not calling us wildland fighter. They wouldn't even they wouldn't even categorize. I, Categorize us as first responders so that OWCP could maybe say, Yeah, you got it at work. I was so, oh, I was just freaking furious over that. A simple thing to do, to err on the side of the employees who are don't understand and everybody's, you know, early days of COVID. A simple, simple thing to do that you would not do on behalf of these people. Who are going to be out there doing this work, putting themselves not only at the regular risk, but now at risk of COVID.
0: That's a goddamn travesty, if you ask me.
1: It's shameful. It's yes. fucking shameful. And I put that in, you know, I put that in my, uh, in my essay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it is fucking shameful. It's like, seriously, yeah. you've they been fighting this, this term tooth and fucking nail for Decades. Decades decades, literal decades. And they don't want to do a fucking thing to like make it a little bit better. And we have this whole argument about millennials getting shit on, right? All the time, right? How the hell are you supposed to pay for anything? Especially if you live in a high cost of living area like Southern California, how the fuck are you supposed to pay your mortgage on a GS6 wage? Right. Even with your COLA. Yeah.
1: And when a state passes a new um, minimum wage, and the state minimum wage is higher than, than the a federal,
0: federal
1: wage. Yep. You know what? Something's wrong here, people. You know, what are we doing to people? And um, I'm just you know, it's just like I said, it's it's a travesty with how we're treating people. And, um, you know, and so I try I just try to highlight that. And, you know, the last time the Forest Service even talked about it was 2009. And that's where the 301 series came from. It was a placeholder. And it said right in the memo, you know, this is only temporary. We are going to work with OPM. We will establish a unique wildland fire series. We will. Um, Because OPM called bullshit on the 401. OGC called, or OIG, Office Inspector General, did an audit called bullshit on the 401 and said, you can't do this anymore.
0: So here we are 12 years later in the same fucking boat.
1: Here we are. <laughs> and so, um, so there's, you know, we've caught some people's attention. Um, and there is, it sounds like they're going to assemble a team and have a good cross section and have actual boots on the ground representations on this working team. There's desire at ASC and HR to pursue this. um, and so it sounds like it was kind of one of the last things happening before I retired to assemble this working team to pick this issue back up. Right. And um, and I hope so, man, I'm I'm skeptical. I'm cynical. I feel I just because we've seen it die on the vine. We've seen the, you know, the uh, things kind of go and then fizzle out and. You know, we don't even have a national fire director in the Forest Service right now. So, depending on who that is, is that going to change? Is that going to be a priority? Is it not going to be a priority? Um, and so, there's a lot of unknowns. And so, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic that you know the time is ripe, and enough people are speaking out, and other people are going to call in. Like, yeah, why? And um, and so, I like I said, I'm really hopeful that this small working group they're trying to put together will get some teeth and get some traction and, and start working towards making things better and the way they should be and treating our employees <laughs> like they matter, like they're not a, a dispensable.
0: Well, Luke has a good uh, term. He has a good like analogy for it. It's like in the old days of mining or logging, right? You always pay the employees of your logging or mining camp at the bar on a Friday night. That way they all spend it at the bar and then they have to go to work on Monday. But mark my words, there will be a time where this, I, I, I see the writing on the wall. People are fucking pissed. There's a timeline on there's a, there is a short fuse on this whole organization. And I think that if they don't change something and change something drastically very soon, this whole fucking thing is going to collapse in on itself. You're not going to be able to hire anybody. Like you were saying, state minimum wage, well guess what you work for the feds you don't have to abide by a state minimum wage period right there's no mental health programs there's no i mean shit owcp is a fucking nightmare oh like a joke it's a joke it's a goddamn joke and yeah. all these things i mean you you can't buy back your seasonal time you right? can't do anything
1: yeah and um you know, I, I, I got a little tired of the finger pointing, you know, it was like forest service. We're blaming OPM. It's them. They don't want to do this. And, you know, and then they're blaming them and then, you know, and it's like, stop, stop. Can we just get people to work together to figure this out and, you know, move forward into doing right by people. I mean, look at all the people quitting, like people oh, yeah. like you, people like Luke, you know, hump, um and if you live in a place like California that has you have other opportunities.
0: Good opportunities to, too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Really good ones to go work for people look how many people are going to PG and E, yeah. right?
0: Oh uh, shit, sign me um, up, man. I can go make more and do less. Fuck, sign me
1: up. It, yeah. Make more and have a quality of life. Have a true work-life balance that's not lip service and bullshit. You know, go to your kid, coach your kids soccer team help raise your children with your spouse, be there for anniversaries and birthdays and not be exposed to trauma. You know, I mean, it's a no brainer.
0: And could you, so... Could you imagine how much the divorce rate would go down? Oh. And the alcoholism if everybody... I mean, I know it's 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 a pipe dream and it's never going to happen like this. We're not going to be califier. It's, it's no, never going to happen. Never. That will never happen. As far as like a federal agency goes, we're not going to treat it like that. But right. could you imagine how much like systemic problems would be fixed as long as we are treated as firefighters.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and valued for that and understanding um, like I said, all the sacrifices that that folks make in their personal lives, not just the sacrifices you make or the risk you take from a snag or a vehicle accident or whatever, but then all the, the personal sacrifices people make and um, yeah. And, and how many people then would, would, you know, remember, uh, you know, cause I know you worked for the BLM and the forest service, but a few years ago when they did the federal employee survey and the forest service was like third to the last out of 250 <laughs> agencies. Right. And so forest service, like we want to be an agency of choice, you know, and we're going to improve things. And it's like, well here you go. Here's one way to do it. TikTok. You know, yeah, big talk. And so um yeah, and so it's it's just I don't it's it's just I don't understand how people can't connect the dots that if you do this, you're going to have also a more productive, you know, high functioning you know, workforce. I mean, it's you see that in private industry, right? So Mm -hmm. it's it's this isn't fake. This isn't phony stuff. There's real data that shows you treat your employees right, you value them, you pay them what they're worth, you recognize them, you provide them services, they're gonna be great employees, right? It's a win win.
0: Oh yeah. No, it is. And well luckily we I mean this the the dynamic the dynamic is changing, thankfully. And we also have a little bit of ass behind the movement as well. Not only with These working groups, which I know of several of them, it's not just the one up in the Pacific Northwest. There's several of these popping up yeah. all over the place. Every region, right. as far as I know. But we also have true grassroots organizations like Grassroots wildlife Firefighters and people like you talking about it openly on your blog. This discussion needs to be had and it's not an easy discussion to be be had, but no. it needs to happen. And something needs to change before, it, like I said, it's going to implode if we don't change it.
1: Yeah, and what, you know, what gave me some hope is after I published those essays, I actually had line officers. I had range a few rangers and four supervisors reach out to me. Um and and they were like, man, thanks for doing that. Right on. You're exactly right. You know, and and in the federal agencies, I had to learn this up and coming, you know, a line officer, a district ranger, four supervisor, district manager, um, refuge manager uh park service superintendent they are the deciders they have the authority to make change so when those are the people going you're right on man you called it out and we need to hear it that gave me hope that they get it they understand it though there there there's still some people (laughs) in those positions you know we can we can cack on the I can bag on the agents and ministers, we can bag on the GS fantastics, but there, there are good ones out there who get it. And so they're the ones that because they they can bring the heat, they're the deciders, but they've got to step up now, right? They gotta be the ones to help facilitate getting this movement and getting this through because it's gonna cost money, right?
0: Yep. Um, no, there's once you start be talking some, money too, and then everybody tunes out.
1: Right. Um, there's going to be sour grapes from the non-fire side of the house, you know? Um, and so you, there's, there have to be people that have the will, the will to support it and help it and make it happen and work through it. Right. They're out there, but they got to then, like I said, they got to stand up and talk.
0: Yeah, there is that. I mean, also we got to realize that there might be some unintentional consequences associated with a big change like that. And we... I mean, I don't know what could happen, but some of those things we might not like. It's a very right. real fact.
1: Right. Yeah, that's a good point, and and I think that's people got to also be realistic then and look at what the trade offs are then.
0: Yeah, do cost benefit analysis and see what actually makes sense. We just got to do right. That's I mean, what does right yeah. look like? People have been right. saying it for years, but nothing has ever. I don't even think the discussion's really been had on a serious manner.
1: No. No, I don't think it's been on anybody's radar until the grassroots kind of was like, you know, hey, time to talk about this again.
0: Yeah. Well, we're a little bit aggressive as as far as like throwing things (laughs) in people's faces, politely (laughs) correcting agencies of what our actual title is when they want the glory of saying firefighter (laughs) for likes. But in reality, oh, you misspelled forestry technician. I know a lot (laughs) of people that do that. I'm one of them. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well,
1: I even started adopting it into my just normal, you know, how I talked at work. And I stopped referring to the fire folks, you know, the, on the engines, the hotshot crew in my forest. And I stopped referring to them as firefighters, just in conversation at the FLT. I started calling forestry technicians.
0: It's petty, but it's effective.
1: Yeah. I do the same shit.
0: I do the same shit. Oh man. (laughs) But yeah. Um, so You've been through a lot of stuff. You've seen a lot of things, and one of those mm-hmm. things that were a topic on our list was surviving critical incidents. So this is mm-hmm. always one that's fascinated me. I'm actually trying to start a nonprofit, kind of the mental health realm, and I'm oh, right obviously on. biting off way more than I can chew right now. So, yeah. <laughs> so if anybody's out there listening that can help me, uh, yeah, <laughs> more than ears. But other than that, so let's talk about some of the incidents you've you've experienced in your in your career.
1: Mhm. Well, I talked about you know the escape prescribed fire, and I think a lot of people don't understand how traumatic that can be, right? Oh, yeah. And um you know, we had we had people in our you know the non-fire people like you guys are a bunch of fucking idiots. I <laughs> hate it. What us. is this amateur hour? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um. Because
0: it's easy to armchair quarterback stuff.
1: Yeah, exactly. But, you know, the communities were so pissed off at us that they wouldn't even, like, we'd we'd go take the G-Ride to get gas, and they wouldn't sell us gas. Oh, shit. You know? And, oh, yeah. Wouldn't serve us. Go into a restaurant. Nope, we're not serving you. Um, and it wasn't just, they just saw the Forest Service shield on the truck or the uniform, and they wouldn't serve anybody. So the non-fire people were like, this is bullshit. Um, so the, And that was that was pretty bad. And I know, like, we did a staff ride when I was on the Klamath of the Loudon Ranch fire, um, that was BLM prescribed fire that burned down 300 and some homes. Right. Oh shit. And I remember talking to some of the folks, um, who were there on that and how, you know, they, you know, that really screwed them up. And, um, you know, one guy was like, I still think about it every day, what I could have done differently. Right. So anyway, so, so if that would have been the worst thing to ever happen to me in my career, you know, at the time I thought it was horrible, but then, you know, I moved on. And when I went to the Klamath, um, in the space of just three plus years, I was there. We had, um, we had a helicopter crash, like my first week there, um, on one of our fires that, um, it was a sky crane, two pilots, and they crashed into the river and, and drowned. And then, um, then over that winter, we had an line of duty death. One of our apprentices crash into the river. <laughs> There's a theme because the roads on the Klamath are gnarly. Yeah, And um, yeah. And then we had uh, another a helicopter crash the following year. And the pilot uh, was actually over. It was on one of our big fires. But one of our crews was under the helicopter doing a long line. And he got the long line hung up in a tree and um had to peel off and and so he didn't crash on top of the crew basically killed himself you know not killing them and uh then uh then we had another non-line of duty death with one of our fire guys on his way home from work and then the following year we had a burnover fatality um so yeah there was a lot packed in there
0: God damn, that's a those, lot of trauma to experience in such a oh short time. God.
1: We were like, you know, the dark humor that we all use to cope with um, things like that. You know, where we were talking about having an exorcism of the Klamath National Forest, you know, <laughs> calling somebody in or asking a shaman or something. We need some help here. And um, it was one thing after another. And, and those were the early days of uh, that was before I was, you know, peer support had kind of gotten off the ground and we were still trying to help people and provide schism and it was still a struggle and we'd learned a lot from South Canyon, right? We learned not to have a guy in a suit show up. We didn't know what the hell he was talking about. So we were trying to do better, but, but um, I just remember trying to do that and feeling super fucking helpless and, and knowing it wasn't enough, but not knowing what else to do. And um, yeah, and we had to, like, so we're, we had a chaplain with the Siskiyou County Sheriff's department who was trained in critical incident stress. The nicest man in the world, Keith, still remember his name. He was it. He was, and he was willing to help us. And he was one guy who then would come and sit down and and he was great. And people responded really well to him. Um, but it, it just wasn't enough, you know? And, um, And then it really was kind of watching just the wreckage, the human wreckage of people struggling. You know, I had my own struggles and just like, man, we got to do better with this. And and then for me, what really what I saw the real shift was when the Klamath Hot Shots had a rollover coming back from a fire, I think, on the Plumas, and of semi. A driver of a semi fell asleep at the wheel and crossed the center line, and clipped the hotshot. The guy driving the squatty driving the buggy saw it. saw the truck coming into his lane, tried to evade, clipped mirrors, but it was enough force spun the buggy around. And when it hit the dirt, it rolled. Mm-hmm. And um, they, uh, the other buggy, soup. They all thought everybody was dead inside. It was really bad. And so, um, that's when we were first exposed to peer support, you know, so like Kurt LaRue, you know, old grizzle hotshot soup from BLM, um, calls, uh, the soup of Klamath, Johnny Klamath says, Hey man, I'm going to come out and be peer support for you. And Johnny's like, what?
0: He's like surprised. (laughs) Yeah.
1: it started it was kind of it was another grassroots organization it was started in the great basin and it was these people who had been through these traumatic events and endured shitty schism that were like we can do better with this we know we can do better and it was just again a wonderful beautiful thing that started from the people and so Bert LaRue shows up, some other folks is like, I'm bringing, bringing people who do the job and understand, and, and we're bringing a really dialed in clinician with us. And, and that's where I also then saw, man, this is cool, right? It's effective. And seeing how
0: well now well, it's effective.
1: Yeah, super effective. How you know, people responded to it and we didn't have the walking dead look and, you know, people still struggling, you know, processing and dealing with this trauma and it, you know, fucking them all up and all that. And so, so that's another one of those changes you asked me earlier where I've seen a positive change where we've done that and learned a lot from it. And, um, we still have some bumps and, and breaks, but um, that's, that's a big thing, that's you know peer support and have people having positive experiences from it. Because one thing I've learned from those clinicians is, you know, you can catch, if you can provide that, it really, you know, studies show in, the, in that community of people who study trauma, that it, it significantly reduces the likelihood that someone will then have PTSD down the road right? No, and there's yeah. research, there's data. And so, yeah, kind of learned the hard way on some of that stuff and had some of my own struggles with it. But I think the more we can show that it's okay to ask for that kind of help and it's okay to say that and we're seeing more people say, can we have this, you know, that's showing that it's working and that it's an effective tool um, and helping, you know, and that we talk about the mental health stuff because we don't have a lot of other um, things provided for us.
0: Yeah. And that whole mental health thing, it's really hard because we're, we're kind of a xenophobic society as far as the firefighter culture. We don't like outsiders. So when you got some, Mm. some dickhead in a suit and a tie who's captain clinician, we're not going to open up to them. We need someone who speaks their language. And I spoke with Minda O's about this a lot extensively. And uh, Nelda St. Clair. And it's like, yeah, we need clinicians that speak the language of firefighters. That's critical. And that effective schism in brief. Or debrief rather that effective schism debrief after a stressful yeah. incident uh it's like you said it's it's does wonders as far as reducing that chance of developing ptsd down the road
1: yeah it makes all the difference and um you do you only have one shot to get it right yep. you know and so you got to bring the heat you got to bring the a-game and minda's one of those freakin man i've been out with her on it and it's a thing of beauty to watch her do it i mean it's just amazing she's a machine <laughs> how, oh my god she's so awesome and um yeah and so uh you know but there's even it's crazy there are even people resistant within the agencies to that you know I don't get it
0: That's a tough um, mentality it's it's it, that's one of those yeah. mentalities that needs to die
1: You're right exactly
0: you're not invincible. Exactly. And I,
1: I think there are enough people, like you said, who seeing the positive effects that are going to, you know, who keep it going and keep it in. And, um, you know, and, and like I became a peer supporter because I saw the value. I saw that it worked. And that's usually where we get really good peer supporters. Then they have a positive experience. I want to give back. I want to help, you know, help someone else who went through what I did. And um, and again, it's this, you know, kind of a grassroots level type thing that is effective. And yeah, you want someone that you trust to come in. If you're going to talk about your darkest day and how afraid you were or or a horrible thing that you saw, and you're going to open yourself up to that vulnerability, you're only going to do that if you have hundred percent trust in those people that are that you're talking to.
0: Oh, absolutely. And that program has certainly changed over the, uh, over the years. Like my first system that I ever went through, it was, it was dog shit. Uh, it right. was horrible. But now after seeing as an observer, seeing it from the outside, like the second one I went through was even better than the first. And now the ones that I'm observed, I have observed, uh, they're great. They're really yeah. effective. And, uh, there's a gentleman over here, uh, who works locally. Uh, his name is Assad and I believe you guys are friends actually. You and yeah. Assad are friends, yep. good buddies. And, yeah. uh, yeah, just the way these, these folks work, it's, Amazing. And that's kind of one, one regret I have about my fire career is not being able to get into that schism, uh, becoming a peer supporter. It's one thing I've always wanted to do, but never got the opportunity to do it. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's pretty cool. And you know, it's, it's the people who are really committed to it. And, you know, when we're recruiting people and they go through the training, we're still running into people who have the passion and want to do it yet their supervisor doesn't let them you know, and we still run into that. Where, yeah. Yeah. For whatever reason. Right. Um, but we also, we also, it's not just a fire thing, right? Like we, we did when I, I did one on, we had one on my forest. Oh, maybe a year and a half ago. And it was a 20 year old rec tech who doing his job and a guy had drowned and he's the guy in the uniform that then everybody's like, "Oh, hey, you got to help us." He's twenty-year-old rec tech, ten thirty-nine, you know, and he's got to go. You know, this guy's been dead all night in the water, and he's got to go fill for pulse and do all this stuff. And so we were able to get him sism Right, um, we've had some other, you know, uh, uh, suicide, non non-fire person, right bring that schism into and so we really try to also show it's this isn't just a fire thing maybe we probably have the more traumatic events we have more of this stuff and more of us most of us who do it are fire but this isn't just for fire this is for all the employees who are having a really hard day and a bad day and we're here to help and um, we got a lot of militia folks who then also you know they're not on a fire assignment in july they're a wildlife biologist or, or, you know, in timber or whatever. And yeah, I can go, I can go help. And so, yeah, so it's, it's even going, it's even grown beyond that, which is just super cool.
0: And that's a way to do it too, is extended to the uh, extended family of fire too, you know, like, right. Well, yeah. I mean, if you were to do that to Rectex or the biologist or GIS or whoever, I mean, that's huge. That's it, that, that, that's one of those tides when it raises, it raises all ships, Right.
1: It's one of those things exactly. that's critical
0: because, like you said, it's not just fire.
1: Yeah, we had a helicopter crash on the Mount Hood this year. Um, and the manager was a militia, he was a timber guy, and he was off my forest. <laughs> and um, the trainee was a hydrologist, the trainee manager, right? And it was the first time they had experienced. They didn't really weren't familiar with it, didn't really know that it was out there, that it was this thing. And, um, you know, they benefited from it and got good feedback from both of them saying, wow, I didn't even know that was a thing, but that was awesome. And um, so, yeah, we're bringing it, you know, try to bring it to everybody. Why would we not help, like you said, the extended family of the of the agencies?
0: Oh, absolutely. Uh, It's it's just good to see those things change over, you know, time. I mean, I was in it for a very short time, but with someone like you uh, in your shoes with a lot of wisdom and experience in the field, I mean, what are some of those reflections on your career? I mean, what, what would you have done differently? I mean, let's go into that. If you were to start it all over again, let's, let's do it.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny because, you know, you hear a lot of people say, I have no regrets. I have a lot of regrets. (laughs) It's like where I was a jerk, you know, or treat somebody nice. Where I, you know, was an asshole or whatever, uh, didn't stand up for somebody or wasn't a good supervisor. But um, certainly, I'd do those things differently, right? I'd just be a better human being, I think. Um, but for me, because I started out as a trainee forester, you know, and then wanted to go into fire. Um, and, and certainly that took some effort, right. To get into fire full time. Um, but I loved, you know, Asheville hotshots are one of the three developmental hotshot crews. Right. So you just detail for a season, but man, I loved it. I loved being on a type two IA crew. I absolutely loved being on a hotshot crew. And I think I would have liked to have had more of a career as in that kind of um, environment. You know, when I went through the Asheville hotshots, I was at GS nine. Yeah.
0: Just like, raking it in.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: When I was on Redmond, we had a, I think we had a GS, uh, I think we had a GS nine as well oh, when I was on Redmond. Right. So there's only three, there's Asheville, Reading, and Redmond. Right. And I think they were yeah. a very underrated and underutilized program. They're freaking right. awesome. They're super fun,
1: super fun. And so, you know, and I remember talking to the soup after the season was over and I was like, man, I want to do this, you know, and I, I, I'm going to look for jobs and I'm going to downgrade cause I was a 460. I was professional. Mm-hmm. I'm going to downgrade and I'm going to take a forestry technician job. You know, I was like into it. You
0: caught the he bug. Talked,
1: Yeah. He talked me out of it and you know, he's, he was like probably gonna. He was in his maybe 50 then. And he'd had a, like I said, a career as a hotshot and engines. And And he was like, why in the hell would you give up what you have right now? He's like, you went to college, you have a degree, you know, why would you give up your, don't give up your GS9. He's like, you, you can find a path into fire, but don't give up your GS9. You know, he was like, don't do it.
0: <laughs> it's just hard and fast. No, don't do this.
1: <laughs> yeah. And um, sometimes I still think I would have liked to have done that. I would have liked, but I also have to think about, I, I do like the path my career took, right? I, I like that I worked in a lot of different regions. I really liked working in fuels because I believe in prescribed fire. I believe we need more good fire in the landscape, you know, and I don't know what, that I would have had that. I don't know if I would have spent, good amount of my career in the hotshot world if I would have ever gotten to be, you know, to the level I got to be where I can I can, you know, have some influence at my level and I can make some changes and I can, you know, hire who I want or you know what I mean? And so so it's it's kind of a it's kind of a mixed bag. You know, certainly would have done some things differently, but pretty happy the way with the way my career turned out.
0: Oh, that's good. I mean I mean, you've seen the highs and lows just like everybody else, but I mean, what were some of the the highs? Like what were the best things?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, so, uh, I got to go on two international assignments. Lucky. Um, yeah, super lucky (laughs) kind of, and it was, it was right place, right time. So when I was working in Florida, I got to go to Belize and do a prescribed fire workshop Um, with a bunch of people from the nature conservancy. So that was super cool. And then in 2012, I got to go to Ethiopia. Um, also we did a, some prescribed fire workshop and actually went out and did some prescribed burning in Ethiopia. That was super rad.
0: That's rad.
1: Yeah. It was awesome. So those were cool. Um, I really like, like after, after going through a lot of those, you know, critical incidents fatalities when I was on the Klamath, um, I then took that class, You Want out Stand Alone, that Region 5 started. That was another yeah. grassroots. It was the people off the San Bernardino after um, they endured the Esperanza fire and losing the entire engine crew. You know, they were like, we. you know, there was no policy back then for that stuff. You, you were navigating and, and kind of inventing it as you went along. And those folks who were GS7s, you know, GS8s, GS9s were like, hey, we can, we can tell people what we learned. So they don't have to start over. You know, we can, we can, and, and they built this class, this, this class, that was really just region five at first. And then other regions started hearing about, it. Hey, Hey, I'm hearing about this one again. That's what I did. I'd move back to region eight, but then I'm popping into my region five peeps going, I want in this, I want in this class. And then was able to help region three, take it to region three after Yarnell Hill, and then help region eight, put it on. And then I became on the cadre for region six. So pretty proud of that. That was super cool thing to be involved in. Um, I really deal. like that.
0: That's a super big deal. I mean, being on that, you will not stand alone. That's huge. Yeah. I, it's it, huge. So personal question here on the, you not, you will not stand alone. Um, you know how, when you implement something new, especially people that are set in their ways like firefighters, if it ain't broken. Don't fix it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so Did you experience a lot of pushback when you started that program up in region six? Like usually when you implement something new, I know there's usually a phase where there's a lot of like, not necessarily animosity, but like resistance to it. They like don't want to adopt a new thing. Then it kind of goes into an early adoption with a lot of feedback and I don't know, pushback, I guess. And then it goes into like the full force storming norming forming or forming whatever that term is you know what i'm talking yeah. about <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah um well when so when i took it in region 5 then i helped region 3 do it and we didn't get any pushback and then region 6 region 6 was the first one but i wasn't involved in that but i heard about it right mm-hmm. and they got they got quite a bit of pushback initially matter of fact because I'll tell you there's a, there's a unit on investigations, right? I end up teaching that now. Um, but at the time the region five cadre goes up to region six to put it on and train a new cadre. Right. And, um, they got major pushback, um, cause they're, Basically, you're telling the employees their rights. This is what we're doing. We're informing you of your rights for an investigation. We're telling you what the policy is, but we're also telling what you're entitled to as your rights as an employee if you're enduring this. And the regional office got really pissed because, you know, there was a lot of bad stuff after 30 Mile, right? Yeah. And when... When Region Six first first did um, You'll Not Stand Alone, it was before Twist, right? But it was still after 30 miles. And there were people who, you know, who lawyered up because they saw what happened after 30 miles. You know, a guy gets arrested. What well, can you blame? Job. Yeah. And so people like, I ain't talking, right? And Region 6 worked really hard to try to overcome that, and they felt like that was going to tell the employees they didn't have to talk anymore. Well, they don't.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they never did. Under
1: certain circumstances, they don't. That's their right to know that. Um, so there was, you know, certain certain stretch of management. It didn't like that. And then when we were trying to, when I was trying to take it to region eight, we got some, we got a little bit of pushback there. Um, and then we were hearing, cause I was on the, on the steering committee. We were hearing that there were people in the Washington office who didn't like it. You know, and I, I just were like, how can people not like this? How can people, how can people not support this thing where we're trying to prepare agency administrators, FMOs, to do right by their employees when they have something really bad happen to them? What in the world could be bad about that? But it's just people, you know. It's it just there's still just like you said, there's going to be those people who. Who would rather have a little bit of a culture of fear, or don't you know, want people to just uh, do what we tell you to do, and not inform people of their rights? And, and I think that's just wrong. Um, but you know, you want know stand alone now has been in every Forest Service region. It's interagency. We've had state state folks in, um, DOI, um, and and it's now been to every region every geographic area and they're going to do it virtually this year for the first time because of the covid yeah. and be able to get more people in that way right and yeah, you so might be able yeah to have we'll more
0: see. adopters come on to that exactly. especially with the age of covid it's like blessing in disguise with some things i mean obviously 2020 was kind of a shit show but some good things came shit out of it show. and that's the digital learning and the things like we're doing right now i mean for shit's sake we're on yeah. zoom that's great right it works right yeah yeah
1: I don't have to, you don't have to have, have somebody, you don't know, pay travel costs or whatever like that. So yeah, it, it, there's a lot of cool things and embracing technology and using it to be effective.
0: Oh, absolutely. And pants are optional. I'm wearing pants.
1: <laughs> <Right>? I wear <laughs> pants.
0: <laughs> oh man. So now you've been pretty outspoken across your entire career. You You don't take shit from people and you right. speak up when something's wrong, when you feel it in your yeah. heart. And I know just anybody who does that is going to experience a lot of resistance. They're going to, they're going to catch some shit for that. So as far as being an outspoken person, what would your recommendations be for that type of person? How to get, how how would you get away with it? Like being outspoken?
1: You know, I'll be honest. I wasn't really good at it at first because I was, you know, there was anger behind it. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of frustration I mean, understandably slow
1: right righteous righteous anger um and so i i didn't always and i had i had a really good person who understood what i was trying to do and supported it who pulled me aside and said the message is being lost in your delivery you know you're angry and you're passionate and that's good to a degree but you're alienating the people, that behavior, the, how you're presenting it, you're alienating people, and they're not listening to the message, right? That was a hard thing for me to hear, right? But that person knew that I needed to hear it because they believed in the message I was trying to tell, and so I had to really check myself and then and think about how i delivered a message like that and the audiences are different you know when you talk about this know your audience whether you're telling a dirty joke you know you're putting on a presentation know your audience and so you know because in the fire world we know we can be direct because we don't have a lot of time blah, blah blah it comes off a lot better but if i'm talking to an flt or i'm talking to a room full of district rangers they don't respond well to that yeah right and i was i was you know, putting people off by that. So then they weren't supporting and buying into the message. So I had to really kind of learn how to talk differently, how to, um, you know, speak differently, calm myself down, not be as direct. And I think that's just having to learn that. So I think that's important too: be outspoken, but understand that, if you want people to hear your message, you got to think about your delivery. You got to think about your audience. You know, you can't swear like a a truck driver if you're talking to a bunch of district rangers. Right. And so, (laughs) um, yeah, exactly. That's different, you know? And so also, um, you know, I, I'm, it it affected, it did affect aspects of my career. I didn't get jobs because of it that I had applied for, you know, when I, people were willing to give me feedback or it was obvious. Um, But also, you know, I was able to find the people who saw that as a value, who saw that as a value that I brought, right. That I was going to speak up, that I was going to call BS on something. And there are people who say they want that in an employee, and they may genuinely think they do, but a lot of people don't.
0: <laughs> yeah. They say that, but it's a, kind of like a lip service thing. You know, it's, it's like a formality yeah. of the interviewer, or whatever.
1: <laughs> right. Right. And so then, and so, you know, seek, I was able to seek the people who genuinely value that in me, you know, and I didn't always land there. I sometimes landed in the place where this person said they did, but they didn't. And it, had some effects on my career and I pissed off some people and, and, um, you know, so what I tell people is you have to think about if you're willing to, if, if that is important enough to you to make then those kinds of sacrifices. And sometimes it will be, and sometimes it won't be, and that's okay. It's okay if it's not right. Um, But if you can get to, if you can cultivate and find those mentors, find those supporters, find those supervisors who value that in you and allow you to do that, seek those people, you know, seek that group, seek that wolf pack, find that wolf pack that likes that. Um, And then if you don't, you know, get yourself out of that situation. Um, And like I said, you know, there becomes, I I never had a problem with being mobile. I was a dual career dual career couple for many many years that's easier um and so and i didn't have children so it was easy for me that if i was in a if i had a shitty supervisor or crappy work situation you know then it, i'd look for a better one yeah um but i know not everybody has that and that may be the people that can't necessarily be as vocal or outspoken until there's a change in their management and to a new supervisor or a new district ranger, whatever. Um, and so, yeah, you just kind of have to weigh that at your, at your, what you're willing to do, how important it is to you. But I tell you what, I sleep well at night, right? I uh,
0: Clear conscious, probably.
1: Clear conscious. And I know that for me, if I'm, you know, if I'm speaking up for an employee, going to bat for them, that I, I'd rather have maybe that black mark against me than, than feel like shit because I didn't speak up because it, you know, you know, cause a lot of us, you go through, man, I wish I would have said something, man, I wish I would have spoke up, you know, and that's, that's a heavy thing to carry around for you, especially if it was kind of a big deal that you should have spoke up about. So yeah, it's one of the grassroots guys. Um, I not mean, I didn't even know who he was. Like, I still don't know his last name. And he, <laughs> he's like, I'm a GS6 how do you, how are you so how are you able to be so outspoken on stuff and didn't that mess up your career and i i had to tell him honestly it, at some points it did um but again i have a clear conscience and also then i i find the place i go to the place and find the, and i look back and i'm like i'm glad i didn't get that job i'm glad i didn't end up working for that jerk yeah. who didn't value that in me right that worked out that worked out for the best so yeah
0: yeah, you gotta have the maturity to understand that too, and then also I think it's really important to you know not try and be willing to die on every hill. Right. Pick your battles. And I the ones that matter. Yeah.
1: It, right. And I had I had good mentors and supervisors who would ask me that. <laughs> you know, oh yeah. Is this the cause? Is this the cause? Is, you want to fall on the sword over this one? You want to die on the hill? And it'd be, sometimes it was like no. Because this other thing's more important. I'd rather die on the hill for that. Right.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, having those people to check me, right. Put me in check, pull me aside. What are you doing? Is this worth it? You know?
0: Yeah, it definitely comes with a maturity element too. It took me a long time because I was always a hothead and I was very outspoken. I was kind of a shithead really. I mean, if I were right. <laughs> to look back at when I was like, you know, <laughs> GS3 through probably four and a half <laughs> I wouldn't want to work with me. I was a piece of shit, but you know, it took one good mentor, my buddy, Joe uh, Bronson, former captain of mine. And he told me, he's like, yeah, dude, you just gotta, you know, just pump the brakes. It, it's, yeah. it's okay, man. You don't need to die on every hill.
1: Right. Right. Like I said, you know, I was a hothead too. And I was righteous. And, and they're like, they're lo- they're Your message is lost.
0: Right? Yeah, I wasn't righteous. I was just a dick. <laughs> Oh man. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Oh, so as far as advice that you would give to people that are, you know, either starting out or mid career, I mean, what advice would you give them?
1: You know, I would say, um, for folks starting out, you know, really be a sponge, be a student of fire, blah, blah, blah. But also then, you know, move around, go work other places, um, be exposed to different things, different fuel types, right? Whether it's geography or fuel or whatever, uh, people, people who think differently than you do, Um And and even for people who because we have people who start out in the agency and they already have a family, right? They already have a spouse. They they might have a couple little kids and they might not be. I've had veterans reach out to me on Facebook who are are struggling navigating USA jobs. Right. I'm not getting hired. I'm going to do this. And the first question I always ask is, are you mobile? Mm -hmm. Right. And so if you're mobile, that's easy, then, you know, expose yourself, go work. You know, go into another region, get out of your comfort zone, um, see how things are done other places. If you're not mobile, there are certain things you still can do. Take a detail, right? Oh, yeah. Take a not, not to exceed 120 day detail or even, you know, if they're flying 120 day, but you still have some family obligations that would make that difficult to be away that long. See if you can split it with somebody and do a 60 day, you know, or hey, would you let me go home? you know, couple, for a week or whatever, people, you know, negotiate and ask for that. And so find those ways then if you're not mobile to still give yourself to work outside your comfort zone. Um, what I try to do, because we have folks that come up and fire and they might have a degree in biology, right? Or wildlife or engineering. And it's like, hey, you know, does anybody want to help uh, wildlife uh, for a month? Right. And so again, find those things that get you out of your comfort zone exposure to different things you know meet different people who think differently um that goes a long way so that that's probably the biggest advice and then you know also you know find your wolf pack find the people who value what you bring and fucking have fun man if people aren't laughing like if i'm at work and my employees aren't laughing i'm doing something wrong. wrong as a manager right? Yeah. I want it to be a fun place to work, you know, and I, you get these heavy conversations, hey, be safe out there and this and like, go have some freaking fun, man. Go have fun with each other. Oh, Best yeah. time of your
0: life. That and keep learning too. You brought up a great point there. It's like the day you stop learning about your job or anything in really in life is probably the day you should stop doing it. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's honestly, you, I mean, especially as a firefighter, <laughs> because you become wildly dangerous and complacent once you think you learned it all.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Huge. You know, that was a, that was a Paul Gleason thing. He coined that term, be a student of fire.
0: Right.
1: And that, that's a broad, that can mean so many things in there. Oh yeah. A student of all all kinds of things about fire. Right.
0: It's pretty wild. So one, one thing I wanted to ask you is you you're very involved with community service. And we brought up Assad and it's just been bugging me. Now I got to ask you about it. So (laughs) you and Assad are buds. You guys are homeboys. Um, Yeah. Talk about Project Enlighten. That's pretty, pretty rad.
1: Yeah, it is pretty rad. And um, so Project Enlighten is a tiny little nonprofit organization that Assad, Rahman and his wife, Olivia started and it. Started from Assad, you know, being like a lot of firefighters back before he became a 26 and 0, what a lot of firefighters like to travel in the off season, like, like major travel.
0: Like was so uh, Southeast yeah, Asia. Yeah, exactly.
1: Thailand. World, Go to Nepal, go to, you know, Assad was one, one of Nepal. those. And so he was a big traveler and he went to Cambodia with some, some buds, right? And uh, buds off the hotshot crew and um, they uh, ran to these little kids, these street kids. Um, a lot of them are missing limbs from the landmines because Cambodia was involved in the Vietnam War. And then also when the um, Khmer Rouge communist rule took over the country and there were landmines everywhere. To this day, the, the countryside is riddled with landmines. And um, so a little kid gets blown up by a landmine. They're no longer of use to their family. They can't farm. They can't raise the chickens or whatever. And so many of them become orphans because their family, you know, turns them out on the street. And so Assad befriended these kids and bought them food, bought them clothes, you know, and just was really touched. And one of the boys drew him a picture, like liked art, had a little stash under a rock of paper and like colored pencils. Mm -hmm. And he drew Assad a picture. And Assad, like, could not get this kid out of his mind. You know, a couple of years go by. He meets Olivia. They start traveling. He wants to take Olivia to these places that he has loved. They go to Cambodia. And they go to this, their tuk-tuk driver, says, hey, you want to go to the landmine museum? They're like, what's that? Oh, it's this guy started this museum. Um, he's a D miner. And uh, he's got a little museum to raise money. And he takes in orphans who were affected by landmines. So they go yeah let's go so they go to this landmine land museum and they're the pictures of the students that this guy's taken in the orphans there's this kid who drew the picture for Assad no shit. On the wall. yeah wow <laughs> two years two years later and Assad goes crazy because they're you know oh my gosh I who's this I need to see this kid and and they're all like who's this big foreign guy asking about this kid.
0: <laughs> he's not a small man either. He's, well, he's probably what, six, two, <laughs> yeah,
1: he's six, three, six, four. He's big man.
0: <laughs> yeah. He's not exactly and inconspicuous. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. And so this kid was at school and then he got out of school and they, all his the other kids, Hey, this, this barang, this foreigner's looking for you. So this kid comes in and, and he's in a school uniform. He's going to school now. He's off the streets. And at first he doesn't remember Assad and Assad's crushed because he's like, Oh my God, you know, you know, running through the fields of flowers towards this kid. And, and the kid finally gets it and clicks. And he's like, you bought me ice cream. You bought me ice cream. And Assad's like, yeah. And so then Assad's like, what is this magical little place that is taking you off the street and has put you in school and got talking to him. And Assad's and like, what can I do to help? And that's where Project Enlighten was born. And so um, the kids who attend school at the Landmine Museum, um, we then provide them scholarship opportunities to pursue whether they wanna go to university, whether they wanna go to a trade, um, nursing school, become a barber. I mean, something that just will continue education to further them so they can be, you know, giving back to their community. And so that's that's our focus. We also help build schools. Um, we mainly do work in Cambodia, do a little bit of Laos. Um, there's a guy off, I think, the San Bernardino, sorry, Puva. Puva's part of it too. We have built a school in his old village in Laos. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, we're just a cool little group who do this on a side hustle, try and make the world a little bit of a better place and um, super... I've always been so happy and honored to be a part of something like
0: that. Yeah. That's very noble cause
1: that that other interest outside of this other life of fire. Right.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, you can't just, there's a lot of things where I've seen a lot of people fall into that trap where their identity becomes fire. And I stress the importance of people like going out and doing something like you're doing or whatever drives their passion. Because if that fire identity consumes you and that's all you are, Oh, man, It's not good. It's not good for your mental it's, health
1: It's not good for your physical health, you know it's like they leave the job and then become an a d and they do that for ten years and they look like they're a hundred years old
0: <laughs> <laughs> there there is that I mean, that's a good retirement plan or a lot of people go out and uh, start their own companies and they just drive like a water tender or something like that or they have uh yeah hand Yeah, and that's a okay
1: too. But like you said, have some interests outside of that. You know, have another life outside of that.
0: Yeah, definitely don't let fire define you as a person. Right. Yeah. Right. No, it's a very noble cause. And yeah, definitely, uh, definitely interested in it. Definitely got to check out more of it and see what else you guys are up to. Are you guys going back to Cambodia anytime soon or?
1: The last time I was there was 2000 and... Oh, gosh. When was that? Like 12 or 13 um asad i think it's been a couple of years so we've been talking about that and um going back you know obviously covid that's put us on hold yeah but, thanks 2020 um, the, the, <laughs> yeah and the, there's a, an american couple who now help run the landmine museum who we're tied in with and they live over there full time now right and so that helps kind of having some eyes for us too there and um what we can do to help support them because it's really this kind of this this joint effort, this marriage you know where we support the larger mission of the landmine museum and the demining effort. Um, Akira is, is the problem. man who started it and when he was a child he was kidnapped into into the Khmer Rouge army and he set landmines. They had little kids do it because if they blew themselves up they didn't care right
0: God And
1: so dark. yeah he did that as a child soldier. And then was able to get out of it and always felt tremendous amount of guilt for that, even though he didn't have any choice, his yeah. child. And so he decided to make it his life's work to go back and make it right. And so D mine right? And so um he's an amazing human being he was up for a CNN hero award a couple of years ago he didn't win it but he got some recognition for that so we're just really proud to be able to support that you know and be just a tiny little piece of then he's the one who took the kids off the streets he's the one who started the school and gave them a home and gave them a family and we're just the next step you know to help them with education so
0: no, it's a very noble cause, and I applaud you for your efforts. That's, that's one of a kind. I, that's, you're the first person that I didn't even know Assad did it, and I saw it with you uh, when I was doing the pre interview. And uh, yeah, I was just like blown away by what you guys are doing <laughs> over there. I was like, holy shit, man. Because I, I know how bad the mine problem is over in that whole oh. area. So it's, I mean, there's millions, probably millions of unexploded ordnance, whether it be mines or the cluster bombs. I know that kids will like pick those up and think they're like, you know, a ball or something like that. And they'll, unfortunately, some of them will either be uh, some of them might be killed or some of them will lose their arm or their leg or yeah. It's, it's a tragedy. It sucks.
1: Yeah, it does suck. You go over there as a tourist and they'll have those areas like roped off danger landmines. Don't, don't go in here. You know, it's right in your face. You see it. It's crazy. God,
0: man. sucks. Anyways, I hate to try and end the show on like a, a shitty note, but a good <laughs> note at the same time, because you guys are doing great work over there. So silver lining. <laughs> Wars right. not so much of a great thing. But so getting to the end of the show, um, where can we get a hold of you?
1: Yeah, so um, you know, my blog, my uh, my essays are at reva Pretty okay. easy to remember. Um, I'm on Facebook, Reva Duncan, uh, Instagram at Fire Chick, F I R E C H I K. And then my email is just Reva Duncan at Gmail. If someone wants to drop me a Gmail, happy to talk or help or anything I can do, answer questions. So, yeah. Okay. Pretty easy to get a hold of.
0: Perfect. And uh, also, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to drop a little hint right here, but I might be starting like a mentor mentee program through Anchor Point. Would you happen to be interested in that?
1: Yeah, very cool. Totally be done
0: with that. All right. So we can get a hold of you there. And, of course, RebaDuncan.com. And if you guys haven't checked out her uh, essays, all of them, because they're all great. Go check them out. Especially the people on the edge of the night. And we don't need another forestry technician hero. I forgot the hero (laughs) part last time. (laughs) Parts one and two. And speaking of which, you are a backbone contributor.
1: Yeah. think as of yesterday right super awesome (laughs) really excited this lined up like perfectly (laughs) i know i know and it it was super cool because that's an awesome effort that mystery ranch is doing and luke and so i was really excited to be one of the contributors so yeah super awesome great cause and i was pushing it on my home unit trying to get folks to put in for one of those and so yeah hope they get a lot of interest
0: yeah hopefully it takes off i'm sure it will um Oh yeah. I know a lot of people are kind of apprehensive that, you know, just dive right into it. Cause like we said in the episode, fear of reprisal, which is very real, clear. (laughs) It's a a danger. So, right. But yeah, well, thank you for being on the show. But one last thing is at the end of the show is I'd like to give you the opportunity to give a shout out to a homie, a hero mentor could be multiple. Take it away.
1: Yeah, man, there's so many. You know, long career and a lot of people helped me get to where I am. But I would say, you know, obviously, you know, being on the Asheville Hotshots really, really changed their trajectory, man, career. And Sue Dick Kassler, still friends with him to this day. He's retired on the coast of North Carolina. He and his wife are very good friends of mine. And um, he was awesome and really a great mentor and um the uh foreman steve little uh he then i was able to hire him he ran hot sh- uh, Asheville hot shots and then i was able to hire him as my assistant for stuffamo in north carolina and he's freaking awesome hung in there with me taught me a lot that guy's one cool customer man he's just cool <laughs> and then um when i went to the climate, that was another turning point really found probably my my favorite wolf pack there and Jay perkins like I, I said, I would never step foot in California. I would never work in Region 5 because it was post-consent decree. And I vowed not to do it. And then when I was in Utah, I didn't like my supervisor. My sole goal for my next job was I was looking for a good supervisor. And that that drew me into Region 5, into the Klamath, Jay Perkins, and um, probably the best supervisor I've had in my career. and. Loved my time in region five and he is, he retired. He's a good friend of mine to this day. Just talked to him on the phone last week and has made me a better, you know, supervisor, manager, human being. So Jay Perkins.
0: Awesome. Well, Reva, thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, yeah. When's your next uh, works of writing coming out?
1: Yeah. Thanks, Brandon. Um, Yeah. I'm thinking about that. And um, so hopefully before the end of the month is up,
0: perfect There yes. we'll go. we be on be the lookout looking
1: for, for a new essay
0: <laughs> right on Reva well thank you very much for being on the show and we'll hopefully get you on here again
1: yeah thanks for what you're doing Brandon really appreciate it and uh, love what you're doing in the grassroots man keep it
0: up hey you're, you guys are steering the ship on uh, the Anchor Point podcast and anybody can <laughs> join the efforts for grassroots just saying throwing it out there right. shameless, shameless plug just sign up <laughs> 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 alright Reva well have a good night thank you so much
1: okay take care
0: see ya And boom! There we go. Ladies and gentlemen, another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast is in the books with our good friend, Reva Duncan. You're kind of a legend. It's awesome. It's cool to see the perspective of someone who's got uh, 31 years of experience underneath their belt, who has just recently retired, and is at liberty to say whatever the hell they want. We talked about the good, we talked about the bad, we talked about the ugly, and we talked about everything in between. It was pretty awesome. But... I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show. It's definitely uh, interesting to see some of the legends in our community on this show and sharing their experiences and expertise. If you want to go find Reva, well, you can go actually go read her works. She uh, does a lot of excellent writing, and I highly, highly recommend that you go and check it out. So if you go over to www.RevaDuncan.com, you can find those two uh, stories that she wrote. She wrote, well, I guess technically three, but for the people on the edge, living on the edge of the night and... She also did We Don't Need Another Forestry Technician Hero Parts 1 and 2. And if you haven't read them yet, definitely go over there and check them out. They're amazing reads. She also does some amazing work for a nonprofit, which is Project Enlighten. And if you want to check that out, go over to www.projectenlighten.org and see what they're all about. It's pretty incredible organization. Yeah. Mines in uh, Cambodia are not cool. And you know, these people need help and she's doing just that. Anyways, Reva, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. It was an exciting one. Loved it. Special shout out to our sponsors. We got mystery ranch. They make the finest load bearing essentials in the business. They're always built for the mission. And they're also giving back to the fire community with their backbone series scholarships and their backbone series publications that they're doing is pretty badass we got hot Shop brewery makers of the finest coffee in the game oh yeah we got kick-ass coffee for a kick-ass cause and all the tools of the trade to get your morning started off right we got the ass movement oh yeah Spreading the good word about burying your turds is always a good thing, especially on public lands. So go over to www.thefirewild.com and check out the ass movement if you're interested in spreading the poo burying propaganda which is awesome. <laughs> and I giggle every time I say it. And last but not least, we got the Smoke Generation, also known as the American Wildfire Experience, which is not just uh, kind of in America anymore. There's uh, some South African stories. There's some places from all around the globe now. Anyways, Bethany, you have a kick-ass organization going on over there. Keep it up. For the rest of you, you know the drill. Stay safe. Stay savage. We'll catch you on the next one. Peace.